Old Testament reading this morning is from Numbers 35. Numbers 35, verse 16. Have an Old Testament reading. And then we'll turn to Matthew 5. God gave Israel these laws that they may regulate the nation of Israel as to living under the sixth commandment. And so we read Numbers 35, beginning in verse 16. Let us hear from God's holy and inspired word. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Matthew, or Numbers 35, verse 16. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill, and he strikes someone so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill, and he hits someone so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If anyone with malice, forethought, shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if without hostility someone suddenly shoves another or throws something at him unintentionally, or without seeing him drops a stone on him that could kill him, And he dies. Then since he was not his enemy and he did not intend to harm him, the assembly must judge between him and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send him back to the city of refuge to which he fled. He must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which he has fled and the avenger of blood finds him outside the city, The avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may he return to his own property. These are to be legal requirements for you throughout the generations to come, wherever you live. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge and so allow him to go back and live on his own land before the death of the high priest. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land. An atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live and where I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew five twenty-one through 26. Let us begin at verse 17. 
as what Jesus says certainly touches upon what we will be considering today. So we'll start at verse 17 and read through verse 26. Once again, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then today's passage. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, You fool, will be danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Be to Imagine that someone asks you, how are things going with you and your family? And you answer in this way. Well, our lawn outside and the appearance of our home from the outside looks pretty good. In fact, uh, we've had no code violations in our whole time since we've lived there. And one time our yard was featured in the town's newspaper. Inside the house, things are going well. We redid the kitchen. We got new carpet. Everything looks good and it's great. But I'm not so dull that I know you're, you mean also how we're doing as people. So I'll tell you some of that too. Well, if you went down to the police station and looked for a criminal file on any of us in our family, you would not find it. You see, we're all good, law-abiding citizens. In fact, last Christmas, we went together to the soup kitchen to help out, and we were invited to stand with the mayor in his good citizen's photo, as he usually takes a picture at the end of that volunteer event in December. I also was recently nominated to serve on a town committee that's committed to beautifying uh, and improving various aspects of the town. So, Basically, things are going as well as they could be. Now, many of those things, or all of those things, probably are good things. But we know that they don't actually get to the heart of the matter. They don't answer the spirit of the question, which is obviously pointed more towards the, the relational, the internal matters of a family and perhaps a marriage. So if we naturally know that this is not the way that we should answer a question to another person when they ask us something like this. Why is it that at times human beings convince themselves that they can perhaps 
trick God with exterior things or dress up the exterior parts of their lives in a way that will, in some way, lead God to think that they have some kind of righteousness that they do not really have. Such thinking is obviously foolish, and that foolishness is put on display in the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, particularly here in the, in the remainder of chapter 5, in his exposition of the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is getting to uh, the heart matters of the law and the way in which the law of God searches us and the way in which the teaching of Jesus teaches us about the depths of its meaning. So by way of introduction, since we'll be thinking about these things for the next several uh, weeks, what are some ways that we can understand these various sayings by Jesus where he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what is Jesus doing here? Is he retracting the law of God? Is he saying that the Old Testament sayings and regulations are no longer in effect? Well, certainly not. Of course, we, we think about the context of what Jesus has just said. What are the last two things that, that he said he was going to do? He said, he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what he is doing in these pronouncements, these declarations, is he's showing the way in which the law is fulfilled and the way in which he opens up the fulfillment of the law. He does so not as a talented scribe or Pharisee, but as God the Son, as the God-man. And that even helps us as we understand these kinds of declarations that Jesus makes. Certainly, even though he is not retracting parts of Scripture, now, not everything he says in these next six sayings is straight from the Old Testament. There's a, there's a mixture of Scripture quotations and uh, naming the tradition. That's what Jesus is doing here. But even the fact that he says, you have heard that it was said, and now I say to you, or but I say to you, no matter what, his, his hearers certainly would have been shocked, or many of them would have been shocked by his saying that. But this shows us really the, the deity of the Son, the authority of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who can say, you, you've heard it said, and now I say to you, because all the words that he speaks come with the force of divine Authority, But of course, he is not abolishing. He is fulfilling. He's giving the fulfillment of the laws, the one who gave it in the first place. But insofar as he gives any correction, one of the things to which Jesus is speaking in these several discourses or declarations is he is answering the abuses of the law that were common at that time by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Jesus says, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And then at the end of the passage, right before today's passage, he says, you must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so that is also what he is teaching us here. What does it mean to have a righteousness that surpasses those of the scribes and Pharisees? And basically, what he means is to have a righteousness that is not merely outward and external, but internal and genuine, and sincere, a righteousness that bubbles up from the heart, that flows from the heart that God gives and God makes by his grace. That's very important for us to understand. Scripture can be abused, and Jesus here gives us the law's true meaning so that we know how to guard against such abuses. 
there are some basic principles that I think help us understand uh, these various sayings of Jesus. And Martin Lloyd-Jones gives several, and I'm just going to name a few of them. And these come from his great work on the Sermon on the Mount, so I can't really improve upon them. So just have these in your mind both today and as we go forward in this section on the Sermon on the Mount. The first is this. The spirit of the law is a, is a primary consideration for Jesus when it comes to expounding the law. It is not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. External conformity is not what lies at the heart of the matter. What lies at the heart of the matter is, of course, the heart. Secondly, the law, the law of God, is not just a list of thou shalt nots. It's not just a, a lot of declarations that says, Here's, here is what you cannot do. But there are positive commands included in the law of God as well. So one of the Reformed Catechisms says this, In God's law, where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, in, for instance, thou shalt not murder, a contrary duty is commanded. Think of the reading of the law today from Leviticus 19. A positive duty contained in the sixth commandment is that you should not do anything that endangers the life of your neighbor. You should work to preserve and to protect life. Jesus has also called us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So our approach to the law of God, our approach to obedience can't just be, well, there's a lot of things that I am not to do. I need to just eliminate certain things from my life. If someone were to say, well, I really want to make sure that I don't uh, transgress the sixth commandment, and so I'm going to cut myself off from all interactions with people for the rest of my life. If I never see another person, then I won't murder anyone. But of course, the contrary duty is commanded. We are to called to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to fill our lives with good works. So it's not just thou shalt not. There are things with which we must fill our lives. Third, the law of God is not meant to keep us in bondage, but rather to promote true freedom, to advance our spiritual character, and to foster communion with God. It's not as if the law of God is sort of a cage that keeps us in this very narrow view of a moral and principled life. To live your life according to the law of God is true freedom. Because to live according to God's law is to live the way that he has called us to live. He knows how we ought to live. He has made us. He knows the paths of life. He knows what fosters true freedom and joy. Also, to live according to God's law with God's help and his grace advances our spiritual character. It grows us in grace. It fosters communion with God. One of the great verses to think about in connection with these ideas is 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What does it mean to be a person who communes with God? What does it mean to be a person who knows Christ and who has the spirit of Christ? The commandments of God are not burdensome. It is a joy to serve God in the way that he calls us to. So with all of that, we focus for just a bit on today's passage, verses 21 through 26. This first such declaration from Jesus, you have heard that it was said, and now I say to you, we find three basic ideas. First, we're accountable before God under the law. 
We're accountable before God under the law. Secondly, we're accountable before God and beside your neighbor or your brother. And third, we're accountable to settle accounts with God. We're accountable to settle accounts with God. Think of our Old Testament reading this morning from Numbers 35. These were the various laws and regulations that God gave to Israel to govern the nation as a nation that was seeking to live under the sixth commandment. But how does that connect with what Jesus is saying here? Think of uh, even our own society. Uh, Our laws are regulated in many ways by the sixth commandment. Murder is illegal because we are a Judeo-Christian nation and have fashioned our morality after these kinds of things. And whether it's in Numbers 35 or in today's society, you saw that human judgment enters the picture. There, there is, there is a, a part of the process where human judgment comes and has its proper place in the meeting out of justice. So Numbers 35, verse 24. The congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. So if someone is killed unintentionally, then uh, a congregation of people were to judge between what should be done. Numbers 35, verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So you see, we learn something about human judgment there in, in Numbers 35, don't we? Human judgment, human memory, human witness is reliable, but they are fallible. Thus, one witness is not sufficient. So it's a reliable thing, but it's not an infallible thing. And in the courts of our society today, the civil courts out in the world, meeting out justice is always imperfect because human judgment is not perfect. We had a very high-profile murder and manslaughter case or various charges in the last few weeks. And no matter what happened, we knew there were going to be people who disagreed with the verdict. But then what about the Pharisees and scribes' abuses of the law? Well... In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, generally speaking, their error, their obsession was with externals. So they would order their lives around making sure they did not transgress the commandments of God. And if they never transgressed any of these commandments of God, then they would never be brought under the auspices of any of these courts in the nation of Israel, whether it be the local court, talked about the elders, the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, as long as they never broke any of those commandments, they felt they believed that they would uh, never be brought under condemnation. And the, the fatal error is seeing a connection between this and the way that God viewed them. If I've never been brought before the elders, if I've never been brought before the Sanhedrin, then that must say something about my standing before God. It is the case, they would say, isn't it the case that, for instance, Numbers 35 is the word of God? Didn't God give us these laws? And so if I've never been in trouble relative to Numbers 35, that must say something about how God views me. Now it's true that all scripture came from God. It's true that all of these Old Testament regulations came from the Lord, but that does not mean that it is all that God might say or all that God might require on the matter. Moreover, it's beyond foolish to think that human courts 
would have a verdict that's exactly the same as what God might say relative to a human being. Human courts are fallible. Now, hopefully, the human courts that we have in society get things right more than they get things wrong. But we all know that they are imperfect. And we know uh, the, the connection between our yearning for justice and what will happen on the last days because the law and a crying out for justice exists within the heart of man. The reason we have courts to settle disputes is because God has written eternity on the heart of man. And we know there will come a day when God will make all things right and he will balance every scale. So the error of the Pharisees was twofold. They severely limited the scope of the law to only be able to ask the question, have you ever committed murder? And they limited the condemning power of the law to the human court, to the civil Israelite courts. Jesus then expands both. The scope of the law is not only to the specific act of murder. The law itself was given to search our hearts for that which gives birth to murder. Psalm 139, O God, you have searched me and you have known me. You know, when I sit down and I rise up, before I say something, you know the thoughts that are on my mind. See, the point is that God knows and he searches our hearts and our hearts are accountable to God. Because the thoughts and the intentions and the desires of the human heart are that which give rise to the murderous acts in life. And those are all uh, abhorrently sinful in God's sight. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says about this. Conformity to the law must not be thought of in terms of actions only. Thoughts, motives, desires are equally important. The law of God is concerned as much with what leads to the action as with the action itself. There's a huge principle for us to grasp. The law of God is concerned as much with what leads to the action as it is with the action itself. And the condemning power of the law is such that even the inward sins have the power to send us not into human judgment, but into the fires of hell. So in verse 22, Jesus uses the idea, the parallel idea of human courts to speak of God's judgment. No, no civil court would ever try you for something like anger. Of course, we can't try things. Uh, we can't try things like thought crimes. Oftentimes, the courts of the church are called to deal with the matters of the heart because they are regulated closely by the word of God. We're speaking here of the civil courts. Someone would not be tried in the civil courts for anger. And then what about what Jesus says in verse 22? If you say, Raka, you're liable to judgment. If you say, uh, you fool, then you are liable to the fires of hell. Well, he's, there's not this ascending, uh, con condemning power to these sins. What Jesus is saying is, if you have anger in your heart, if you have contempt for someone, if you insult someone, then you are liable to all of these things, to judgment and even to the fires of hell. So what do we make of all this? How do we bring this into our own lives. Well, first, we see a, a couple of things. We see the searching nature of the law of God. And we see the danger of reducing it to externals. What does the law of God do? It lays us bare before the righteousness and holiness of God. It searches our hearts and says, not only does the law of God condemn the act of murder, 
but it equally condemns all of those things which lead to it and which are part and parcel of it. Anger, hatred, malice, strife, contempt, pride, and self-righteousness. How dangerous it is to reduce it to externals and to say, well, I've never done anything that's got me in trouble. And the Pharisees might say in Jesus' day, I've never been in trouble relative to Numbers 35, so I'm fine when it comes to the sixth commandment. But the greatest danger is convincing yourself that your standing before God is fine because you never break the letter of the law. If you hear the Ten Commandments in church, we read it, and hopefully churches give themselves to reading the Ten Commandments often. If you hear it and you say, well, I had a pretty good week, then you are probably doing it wrong. That's not what we ought to think. I've not murdered anyone. I didn't commit adultery this week. It was a pretty good week. Listen to Lloyd-Jones once again. He says, Alas, there are still people who seem to think of holiness and and sanctification in a purely mechanical manner. They think that as long as they are not guilty of drinking, gambling, or going to theaters, all is well. It does not seem to matter if you are jealous, envious, raging, spiteful, full of pride. Someone may look at their own life and say, well, I don't drink, I don't gamble, I don't watch bad movies. But what if in your heart you are full of envy? What if in your heart you are full of rage? What if in your heart you are spiteful, contemptuous towards your brothers or your sisters? What if you are full of pride and self-righteousness? Note the things that Jesus focuses on here. If you are angry, if you say raka, if you say you fool, Raka is basically an insult of contempt in which the insulter is communicating that he thinks the person is basically worthless. That's why you look in in other translations, it'll say anyone who says you good for nothing or you worthless fellow. It's basically to be filled with contempt and contempt is to look at someone and say, I think you are worthless. In fact, I think you are so worthless, it might be better if you just die. That's why contempt is connected to the sin of murder. Because someone who believes that strongly enough that the world would be better off if if such and such person were not around, then it may drive that person to do just that. You may prefer to call someone something else. A fool, for instance, as Jesus says. But it matters not. All of them, anger, contempt, insulting out of hatred, all lead to the same place, condemnation. The word here for hell is a disputed word and concept, Gehenna. There was a landfill outside of Jerusalem that came to be associated with the judgment of the last day. And so some people will say, well, Jesus is not teaching about an eternal hell that is a torment for people who rebel against God because this was just a landfill outside of of Jerusalem. But think about what Jesus is doing here. He's using human courts to talk about eschatological judgments, to talk about the judgment of the last day. And so he equally, in a like manner, talks about something that exists on earth That is a picture of what judgment and condemnation actually is. It's the entire point of the passage. And so this is a very strong affirmation from the words of Jesus about the biblical doctrine of hell. So it's a humbling point, isn't it? First, we notice the serious nature of the sinful anger that we either hold in our heart, we convince ourselves that we can harbor it there, 
that is fine there, the anger, the rage, the contempt, the malice, the hatred for our brothers and sisters, it's safe in our hearts, or maybe it sneaks into our mouths. It's safe there, as long as we don't have an external transgression of the sixth commandment. But think about all the things that Jesus says here. Not only the anger in your hearts, but the sins of the tongue. James 3, 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, and listen to this, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. If your tongue is out of control, it sets the entire course of your life on fire, and... The fires of hell will set the tongue on fire. You can go to hell for your tongue. It's a humbling, humbling truth from Jesus. How humbly we ought to approach these verses and understand what the law does. It searches us. It searches us from top to bottom, from the outside in and from the inside out. And God looks upon the heart, and that is the judge we will one day face. How dangerous to convince ourselves that external conformity is enough. We're accountable before God under the law. We're accountable before God and beside your brothers and sisters. In verse 23, Jesus moves from the sins of the tongue to the call to be at peace with our brothers. This is something to notice. Right? Our brothers and sisters in the kingdom, they are not worthless good-for-nothings. They are not fools. They are our brothers and sisters, and we are called to live in harmony with them. So this reminds us of something we talked about a few minutes ago. A negative command, thou shalt not murder, carries with it many positive duties. So we are told not to murder, but now we are called to fill our lives with seeking and promoting and pursuing peace and love with our brothers and sisters. So the picture of someone who leaves the temple in order to settle a matter with his brother, suggests that God is not pleased to accept an offering while strife exists between two of the people of God. You would think, well, surely the person should worship first and then go settle the matter. And Jesus flips that on its head. No, leave what you're doing at the altar. Go and settle the matter with your adversary and then come back and then God will be pleased to accept your offering. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. This verse in Hebrews suggests that one of the best ways to see that sanctified holiness worked out in the life of a uh, son or daughter of God is the peace that we seek to keep and maintain among each other. Those who willfully continue in strife against a brother or sister knowingly cannot have confidence that God accepts their service rendered unto Him. When you knowingly and willingly continue in strife against a brother or sister, you cannot have confidence that God accepts your service rendered unto Him. To do so is to break the sixth commandment. The Westminster Larger Catechism lists some of the duties that we have relative to the Sixth Commandment. It commands us to fill our lives with things. What does it say? We ought to have charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, and kindness. This is all part of the Sixth Commandment. 
We are to be peaceable. We are to have mild and courteous speeches and behavior. We are to have forbearance, a readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil. In other words, we are to diligently seek unity, love, compassion, and the fellowship of the Spirit, and regulated by the Word. In the kingdom of God, hatred towards one another is absolutely condemned. I'll say it again. In the kingdom of God, hatred towards one another is absolutely condemned. That does not mean that we sacrifice truth for unity, but it means this. The God who creates new life relative to His Word and His Gospel creates a unity that is formed around truth. And oftentimes, our sinful hearts get in the way of that. So we are accountable before God under the law. We are accountable before God beside our brothers and sisters and called to seek peace and maintain peace and unity. But lastly, as we close, we are accountable to settle accounts with God. We are accountable to settle accounts with God. If you are human, then you certainly would listen to most of the aspects of the teachings of this passage and you would be humbled by it because you would say, I fall short in so many different ways. And it is true. We do fall short in so many ways. Now, Christians need to have their lives marked by a difference in these things. By the power of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will experience victory over the sinful anger that we want to harbor in our heart. The contempt that we have towards our brothers and sisters the way that our heart reaches our mouth and the things that we say. We are to experience victory in all of those things. But at the same time, anyone who comes to this passage knowingly will know and understand and admit that we will never fully measure up to these things. We will never be able to believe that we have conducted ourselves with the perfect conformity to this standard. The more that you learn about the commandments, the more that you learn about the duties that are connected to this commandment, the more you feel inadequate. The more you feel imperfect. The more you feel that you have failed. But that is the beginning of the difference between the righteousness of the kingdom of God and the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The righteousness of the kingdom of God begins with a poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The righteousness of the kingdom of God is about mourning over, a sin, over sin. It is about yearning for and hungering for that which only God can give in righteousness. And so all of us will have to admit that if God were to come as our accuser, there is nothing that we could say. And if our lives were to be completely evaluated just according to this one commandment, there would be nothing that we could say. How often do you feel anger? How often do you say things that you regret? How often have you cut others down with your words and regarded others as worthless and even you wished that they would die? But that is why you must come as your own accuser now. You must settle accounts with God. You must seek the Lord while he may be found. You must call on him in truth because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. His dwelling is with the lowly of spirit. His dwelling is with the humble, for he sent his son to humble himself, 
so that he might pay the price for sin. That is what verses 25 and 26 in this passage are pointing us to. Jesus is reminding us, you need to settle with your adversary while you can. And over the, the overtone of this entire passage is spiritual judgment. And so what he's pointing us to is he's saying, you need to understand and to hear and to know how you settle accounts with God. How can you make yourself right with God? And we need to do so not thinking that we are basically okay and just need a little boost of forgiveness. We need to settle with God coming with the knowledge, the acknowledgement that we are wretched and foul, unworthy sinners. We need to come to God humbly repenting and begging forgiveness in Christ, knowing that the only way to forgiveness is by the one who lived and died for you, for sin, for sinners, the one who is raised to the right hand of the Father, who is the guarantee of the life that he will give to all of those who come to him in faith and repentance. The gospel is the best news because there is no other way for you to settle with the judge. And when you trust in Christ, it is the coming judge himself who bears the wrath for you and who grants you his perfect and heavenly righteousness. How can you delay when you do not know what the future holds? How can you put Christ off for one more minute when none of us know the course of our lives? None of us know how long we will be here. None of us know how long we will continue in the way. And Jesus says, settle with your adversary now, the one at whom, uh, with whom you are at enmity. And ultimately, for an unreconciled sinner, you are at enmity with God. And so Jesus says, seek the Lord while he may be found. How can you put Christ off when you do not know the course of your life? So seek the Lord while he may be found. Come to him in repentance and faith. And give him all the glory. Because it is the glorious one who saves you by his work. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and for... Christ who came to this earth and who finished his work for us, for his people. Oh, Father, we pray if there is anyone here who has dressed up their lives with an external conformity, but who has never looked to Christ in full repentance and faith, we pray that you would grant that spiritual life. We do not know what the future holds, and thus, we recognize and know that our greatest calling is to settle accounts with you. We thank you that Christ has paid the debt, has canceled our debt, what he has done at the cross. So fill our lives with the gratitude for the wonderful news of the gospel. Humble us under all of these things as Jesus shows us that it is not merely an external conformity or a keeping off of the transgression of these commandments, but rather these commandments search our hearts. They ask the question of, what kind of anger do you have in your heart? What kind of contempt? What kind of hatred? What kind of malice? 
what kind of pride? Rid us of all of these things. And as you rid us of these things, turn the eyes of our hearts to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives forever in heaven. We are eternally grateful for his work. And we thank you for sending him out of your love for us and giving us your spirit that your work may be done and completed in us unto the last day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We stand together and we sing.